Welcome to Northern Latitudes. I'm Bill Alt. Over her 17-year career as a travel writer, Jane Marshall has wandered the planet, always in search of wild, high-altitude, off-the-beaten-track places. During her travels, she discovered something profound. On three continents, separated by vast oceans, she found hidden valleys known locally as Happy Valley. Her quest to discover what makes them happy and learn from their indigenous keepers. The result is In Search of Happy Valley, part memoir, part travelogue, and part epic adventure, book chronicles Jane's journey to find Shangri-La and the wisdom that can save the planet and our own hearts. Northern Latitudes, Jane. Thanks for having me, Bill. This I'm going to call this a quest because I think that's what it is after reading this book. Mm. And I think this quest, well, I know this quest started at a very young age for you because you mentioned that at the age of 12, you wrote in a poem, I want to be part of ancient rituals. Yeah, that's true. You, you've, <laughs> do, you've done that and a whole lot more. But talk to me about how it, how it all started for you and how much just nature meant to you as you were growing up. Sure. Yeah, nature has always meant a lot. Um, I actually, I didn't write about it much in my book, but I lost my dad when I was five from cancer. And um, before he died, I still have memories, even from that very young age, of him taking me to the mountains near where I live now uh, on his backpack with my mom. There's a picture of me. I don't, I don't have a memory of that one, but I was a little, little baby back there in his back, in his backpack. So I remember, or I have memories of being outdoors with my parents. And after he died, I think I had different stages of grieving as I went through um, my life, and nature just always held relief. Um, it's just a very healing place for me to feel at peace. And for me, nature is a place that's beyond language. Even though I'm a writer, it's like beyond language. It's deeper than deeper than culture, deeper than race, if you want to use that word. It's deeper than everything. It's something that we're all part of because we are nature. And so as an artistic person, I just find a lot of peace there. Um, I'm a backcountry skier, hiker, random camper. I do a lot in the outdoors myself with my husband and with our children. So yeah, nature is extremely important. And then I didn't always have methods of how to connect with nature. I could do it in my own ways, especially doing things alone at times. But I knew uh, as I got older and went through university and studied anthropology as my minor, I knew that other cultures outside of my own culture had methods for connecting with nature, living in balance with nature, and um, I would say offering to nature like living in harmony. And I didn't always see that as being present in my own, even my own life, but certainly in, in my own culture. Not that my culture is bad. I think, you know, I'm a, a white woman live, who grew up in Edmonton, all good. But there were other deeper ways of knowing that I really wanted to connect with. And your grandparents were a big part of you connecting to what for you is a local happy valley. Mm -hmm. um, 
Tell me a little bit more about the Happy Valley that's close to home before we talk about the one that's a little further away. Sure, sure. Yeah, so there's three Happy Valleys in my book, um, in uh, Morocco, in Alberta, and in Nepal. So the Happy Valley in Alberta, I, I didn't learn about until later, actually, but it's quite special to my family. Um, my grandpa, I later learned, was very drawn to this area of land that exists between the Rocky Mountains, specifically the Livingston Range in southern Alberta, and the Porcupine Hills. Um, traditionally, that's Blackfoot territory, or uh, Nitsitapi territory. Um, but yeah, there was there's a lot of ranch land there. And he had a dream with his young family um, to live there. And even when young, when he was younger than that, he trailed horses from a ranch in Calgary, if you can imagine, south to what was called the Buckhorn Ranch. He actually transported horses before there was a highway. So he has quite an, had quite an old connection to this valley. Um, and it must have made a big impression on him when he was young, because once he had a family, he really tried to live there. But it was very remote. It still is quite remote. And uh, he wasn't able to realize that dream. And so my grandpa had this I call it in my book kind of a blue inner longing for the land and I could see it in him. He would, he would try to get there. He was always searching. He was searching for his happy valley. Um, and I think that did really imprint onto me into my own, my own mind and my own search for, for the happiness maybe he was looking for, but also that I look for. And getting back to the ancient rituals part, you've been, fortunate, blessed to be part of some of our Aboriginal people's ancient rituals, the Sundance. Mm -hmm. I won't give anything away, but I must say your description in the book is quite amazing. You can tell how much these rituals and this connection with not the culture, but the land as well means to you. And that gets us a little bit further afield to your trip to Morocco and and then we're going to talk about Nepal. But Morocco is, I've been to two of your three happy valleys. I've never been to Nepal, but I've been to two of the other ones. Oh, excellent. So I have a little bit of experience. And I it's, it's one of those ones where I don't know how to describe it to people. But when I read your book, I get the same feeling I had. And I had it last summer when I was at Edith Cavell mm. looking at the glacier. Mm-hmm. What what is the feeling you get even thinking about these places? I feel peace. I kind of go out of my neurotic planning, check the schedule, check the email, check the Instagram mind, and I just fall back into the geography of those landscapes. They just seem to hold me. I also get like a feeling of adventure when I think of them. Like I get I get I'm, I'm like grounded and yet excited because <laughs> there's just they're just so stunningly beautiful. And then, yeah, I also have beautiful memories of the people that I met in those places, like the Blackfoot elders and community or the Amazi Berber people in, in Morocco, like our friend Ahmed who guided us. And then also very much the my friends in Nepal who I've formed very deep connections with over the years. So I remember the people too that are connected to those places. And I know you, I was going to say, I know what you mean about when you like, when you go to a place and you just feel it and then you recall it, like Edith Cavell is so like present. And when you look at that glacier, it's like so in your face and it evokes that feeling. And then you can always go back to it. You can. And that's, but it's, 
you make such an impression or you, sorry, you say the people that you've met have made such an impression, but you've obviously made an impression on them too, because you've been given names by the Blackfoot and, That's true, yeah. and, and the people from Nepal. Right. Yeah. And it's in the two names, even though I don't know you, I'm going to say them in English because there's no chance I'm going to be able to say them in their, the native tongue Sure. is we're going to start with walking above. Mm -hmm. Now you have to say it. Well, walking above is hard to pronounce. And um, the man who gave it to me, Conrad, Go on. Yeah, is how, so I've been practicing it. He recorded his voice uh, saying it numerous times so that I could practice, but I, I, I mean, I'm sure I'm not saying it quite right because I'm not born with knowing that language. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's it's Itzpa Pawahwaka is the best I can do to honor that name. Walking and above. Tell me a little bit about that one because it's 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 not as obvious, I don't think, as the other one. Sure. So walking above, um, Conrad Littley for Pita Pikoan, and I also, I'm sure I didn't pronounce it quite right, but he's a, a, an interpreter at Head Smashed in Buffalo Jump in uh, the edge of Happy Valley, we can say. And he gave me this name. And he had emailed me that he was going to give me a, a name in all of our back and forth and my research. And I was so moved and grateful. And I write in the book that I'd, I'd always wanted a name because I feel like a name connects you to a people and a place um, and it gives you roots. And that's something I've, I've always looked for and I explain more in my book. So when Conrad emailed me that, I had a big feeling inside. <laughs> and then I went to um, Head Smashed in Buffalo Jump in Southern Alberta and uh, he, he did a ceremony and it was actually during COVID. So we sat far apart at separate tables and he had his uh, smudge and his his ritual items there. And he explained the name to me. He wrote it on a whiteboard and pronounced it for me. And he told me about, about my name, that it meant walking above. Um, and really the name means that for one, on a certain level, I love being up high in the mountains. <laughs> he knows that about me. I, I love the valleys, but I also am very drawn to high dangerous places. I've always been a mountain girl. <laughs> and um, but also walking above is like connecting to the, I guess you could say the spirit world. I think that's what Conrad meant, connecting to something that's a, in a different realm. I believe he used the word realm. So in that way, I think this book isn't just about connecting on sort of a normal level, but it's about connecting us to what's deeper, what's higher, what's above, what's through. And, uh, and yeah, what's present within all of us. And you call yourself a mountain girl and you mentioned it a couple of times in the book. Obviously the mountains of Nepal are the mountains. Those, yes. They're the big ones. <laughs> they're, they're the ones that if you love mountains, you gotta love them. Yeah. Your first trip there. Why? What was the drawing the first time? Because as it's gone on, your love affair with Nepal has blossomed into 
all kinds of things. But the very yeah. first time. Talk it is a love first. affair. Yes, sure. It's a total love affair. I'm so in love with Nepal and specifically Sum Valley, T-S-U-M, and uh, which is called the Valley of Happiness or Happy Valley. The first time I went there was actually in 2009. And it was for my first book, which was called Back Over the Mountains. It was published in India. And um, I wasn't really meaning to go to Nepal, but I did in order to try to get to Tibet. I did get to Tibet. So that was incredible. And of course, the land of Tibetan Buddhism, which I'm, you know, I practice and I'm very drawn to. Uh, but Nepal floored me. It was stunning, right? It's where like the Indian subcontinent crashes into, or, like crashes into in Asia and then erupts into this lake, into the Himalayas. It's just, it was stunning. And, and I fell in love. And that's where I learned about the Tsum Valley and the lore of the Baal. So Baal meaning the secret hidden land. And that was, is a story, uh, is a legend, is a myth, is a history. All of those things were mixed together, I think, um, that captivated me. And then multiple trips after that to learn more and more and more. Another trip, or my first trip to Siam in 2012, another trip in 2017, another one in 2019. And I went again last year. I plan to go next year. I mean, this place is so moving to me, and you're right. It's those big, big mountains. Um, they have a big effect. They're like a magnet for me. They're a magnet for you, and then the spiritual part of it. And I think just the the depth of the history mm. is a big part of it, because you mentioned a lot of things in your spiritual treasures, which you're going to have to tell me what those are, because I don't know. You know, you've obviously fallen deeply in love with this country and these people mm -hmm. and, and their religion. And it's, it's like, how, how much of a process is that? And because that's, that's a big step for a girl from Edmonton. Yeah. Yeah. What in the heck is a girl from Edmonton doing, learning about Tibetan Buddhism, uh, traveling multiple times to an extremely remote valley that has no road access, then going deep to the deepest part of this valley that, yeah, that even the local people are afraid to go to because it's so treacherous and taxing. I don't know. I mean, yes, it's been a process. I think it's like life, right? When you look back on it, um, it's easier to describe it in the moment. You have no idea what kind of a wild ride you're on. And I've been on this wild ride for a long time. <laughs> and, and both Happy Valley in Alberta and Happy Valley in Nepal, there's actual chunks of geography, right? I don't know how else to say that, mm -hmm. that, that are important for different reasons. Um, in Alberta, it's they're parts of different body parts of of Nappy, the creator. Of Nappy. Yeah, mm -hmm. thank you. Nappy. Sure. <laughs> and then Nepal, it's more like pieces of geography or more deities themselves. Correct? Yeah, yeah okay. that's right. So okay. so that's bang on. So um actually in so in all three of the valleys, they what really connected all three together for me and sort of the main focus that I found captivating was how the indigenous populations in the three valleys would name geography, geographic points after either body parts or after deities or spiritual people or, or beings in their, in their spiritual tradition. 
Yeah, so there, I like to use the word, there is an anthropomorphization. <laughs> I love that word, and it's so hard to say. I'm glad, <laughs> glad, glad you're saying it, not me. <laughs> I, I looked it up before our, our podcast here just to make sure it was really a word, but it's one I use. I like that <laughs> word. <laughs> At the anthropomorphization of these, these um, pieces of land or even areas of land. So I thought, well, how, how interesting that these three completely different cultures um, see themselves like the human form or the deities or gods or buddhas that they revere in the land so it's not they see themselves not as separate from the land but they honor the land and see themselves in the land and i was like yes like that's such a deep connection and i feel that um i write in my book that when i was younger i'd venture off to these wild places and i leave a little piece of my hair or I'd leave, um, I'd leave a tooth. Like my mom, I hope no one still believes here listening to the Tooth Fairy. If they do, just turn this off for a second. Tooth Fairy, turn off the podcast. Okay, and then I'll continue. And um, my mom returned all my teeth to me, which is itself a little bit strange, but she's like, I've been, I just saved them all these years. So I had them and I would take a tooth and leave it in these special places because I so desperately wanted to be part of the beauty that I was seeing. I just wanted to give something. And so that's what I would do. So when I learned that these cultures would name the land after themselves or a human form or a divine form, I was like, yes, that's how I feel. I feel like that too. So I wanted to learn more. So for example, in Alberta, um, the Blackfoot people, the Nitsitapi people see, see the form of Napi. So if you zoomed out and like looked down aerially, there would be like a, the form of their creator, Napi, over the landscape. His backbone, the Rocky Mountains, his heart near the Sheep River, Nose Hill in Calgary, which is a place people know the name of but might not know the deeper meaning, the Elbow River. And it's like those are Napi's body parts laid over the land. So it's sacred landscape. Yeah. And so I was captivated by that. And then in Nepal, this one is so interesting. So in Nepal, the valley that I went to, or the, the Bayul, so the secret hidden land, I should give a bit of a precursor on what is a Bayul. Is that okay, Bill? Yes, go ahead. Okay. All right. So the Bayul, they are our hidden lands in the Himalayas, parts of Tibet. Nepal, Bhutan, those areas. And in the 8th century, the pioneer of Tibetan Buddhism, his name was Padma Sambhava. He was an Indian scholar yogi, and he went from, from India into these areas, sort of like implant Buddhism into them. So what he did was in these valleys, he didn't always feel people were like receptive or needed these teachings. Like, oh, they don't need to know about this right now. So he would plant or hide treasures. These treasures took the form of texts that would like describe how to become enlightened or um, malas or rosaries where that had been used by famous um, uh, yogis and yoginis. Or in the case of Nepal, the Kimolung Bayol, where I traveled, is actually the body of a Tibetan princess wrapped and hidden in this valley. So unbelievable treasures, but they were hidden in the 8th century. Then he also hid guidebooks, and they were hidden around in the Himalayas and the mountains. And so the, so the legends go that um, the right person at the right time, called a Turtan, would have a dream. 
And in this dream, they would be able to see where this guidebook was. Then they'd go, they'd pull it out of a monastery or out of a rock, and it would have the instructions for how to get to the Baal, the hidden secret land. They'd go there and then they would be the person, the rightful person to pull out the treasure and either share it or experience it and put it back in to keep the power of that place. So, I mean, this stuff is sounds so legendary. I write in my book, it's like an Indiana Jones kind of story. <laughs> but this is what the what the Bayol is. And so in Kimolung Bayol, in the Nepal Bayol that I traveled to, there are treasures that have been revealed. They have been documented. Some of them have been put back in. Um, and then also within the Bayol or the Hidden Valley, there is a rock. Um, this is one that I traveled to and found that is in the form of a, of a female Buddha called Senge Dongpa Ten. This rock is at the top of an outrageous ridge and it's just, it takes quite a bit of mental fortitude to get there. Um, but there's this beautiful rock and treasures have been revealed from this location, pulled from the stone and the rock resembles this female Buddha. So there are multiple places like that or in another part of Kimolung Bail, there would be like the um, I hope I can say this word on your podcast, but there would be like the um, the penis, <laughs> the phallic symbol of uh, Padmasambhava or the secret parts of another female yogini. Or in my book, I actually go through the vagina or the chondro sanglam of, uh, of like a sort of like an angel. So it's very, it sounds very out there, but basically the the meaning is that the land is is not separate from the divine or from the human. We're all all part of it. There's so many interesting things in there. I'm going to unpack two, maybe. One, back here in Canada and Alberta, that the people had this satellite view of this deity, which obviously they didn't because yeah, they didn't have satellites then. But right. I thought it was interesting. They had this this view, this in their head or in their in their storytelling, of this image of the of creator nothing. of their creator, yeah. spread over this huge expanse of geography. And then back to you on a personal level, I found it very interesting that you were giving your teeth and your hair as a gift to the wild or to nature or to the land mm -hmm. before you knew or had too much of a knowledge of that this was a common practice in many, many beliefs, That's systems. Right. And it, it's intriguing to me because it, it links everything. It links you as a young younger person discovering this. It links the beliefs of these people in three different places of how important the land is to them. It, it just, it comes together so well. And you, it, the story in Nepal is amazing. It starts with this, this first day of traversing. was yeah, the main, the, the, the tra tra traversing waterfalls and streams and across a cliff face where you get to the end of the day and you look back, you're not sure how you did it. Mm -hmm. And the people there become very important to you. And I think anytime you do that sort of, challenge with mm -hmm. people, they automatically become so much more important to you. Your time in Nepal, you developed a love for these people and their ways to the point where you've formed something called the Compassion Project. Tell me a little mm -hmm. bit about it. 
Sure. So the Compassion Project is a Canadian charity. We're a registered charity. And I started it with uh, a few local people from Zoom. And we officially registered in 2015, right after the earthquakes. So I just, I, I went to these places. I've received so much from, from Nepal, like that's made me a better person. That's just enriched my life so much. And I think by default, the lives of my children too. So I wanted to give something back. Again, it's about creating balance, right? Not just taking, but also giving. And so uh, when I was in Sum Valley for the first time, which is part of this Kimolung Bayo, it, it had only been open to tourism for about, I think, believe about four years. And so there hadn't been tourism before that. Uh, and so it was very, very untouched at the time. But one thing I noticed was that there was like not reliable health care and there's, there wasn't reliable education. They had a couple of little government schools, but there were never teachers at them. And uh, I actually saw a woman in labor who had been put into a basket placed on her husband's back and her husband was running down the mountain to get her to a hospital. And I having like as a mother, I thought, oh, my goodness, like and she had a blanket over her head. I thought this woman is in dire, dire situation. And so I, when I wanted to give back, I asked, right? I didn't want to just give something that wasn't needed. So I asked my friends um, what's most needed. And of course, the answer was healthcare and education, these basic human rights, hopefully we can all have. So that was it. I just started working. I had no idea how to start a charity. I was not into fundraising. I didn't know these things. But slowly, slowly over time, we figured it out. And we've now grown to a place where we just want to keep ourselves. We don't want to keep getting bigger. We want to offer something very sustainable and stay in Zoom forever. But we have a clinic, a free clinic for the villagers with a, a nurse who can deliver babies uh, and a new health worker we've just hired. And then also a kindergarten school so that kids can get um, basic primary, like basic early education. And that's also free. And we give them a hot lunch, a hot healthy lunch every day. So I just listen to the people, my friends in Nepal, um, we talk about things, they guide it through their indigenous wisdom, and then I connect people to it. And uh, I actually also take people there if they want to go on a trek. So I've even started a little trekking company so that people who want to visit Nepal and visit that beautiful place and also the Compassion Projects clinic and school can, can go. <laughs> yeah, there's a little part, little part of the book where you describe arriving and you meet the kindergarten yeah. children, the children, and it, it's it's just it's so touching, and it it's part of that reflection of how much you've come to mean to them as much as as they mean to you, and they gave you a name as well. This one in English is very long, but I can say it: uh, the lucky one whose light shines the way for others. Mm. Now you have to say it. Sure. You... <laughs> My Tibetan name, because it's in the Tibetan language, is Sonam Chidin. And it's such a it's such a perfect reflection. And I don't even know you, but reading the book, this is a perfect reflection of you mm. and what you've done for a lot of people. Before this book, but through this book, you're going to have an amazing impact, I think, just because of what you talk about. And I want to, I'm going to say something and I want you to just say, yeah, sort of Bill or no, you're wrong, Bill. That's okay. I've been told I'm wrong at least three times today. <laughs> Deep down is a happy valley, a place or a space that speaks to us 
at a primordial level takes us back to what what's was and we need even more now exactly you totally get it okay. um two things about that first of all i'd say you know me better than most people do if you read my book because that's the essence of who i am and how i can communicate who i am in this world so i think you do know me well and now i'm getting to know you too um it's an honor to be able to share like the core of who i am through my writing and have people actually want to read it so thank you and then about that primordial that primordial part of ourselves is exactly what the happy valleys can do. They're like a portal back into yourself. Right? So we have all these layers on us that we develop as we get older and that we develop as we live in this world that's like very busy and we need them. They're important. They help us thrive. They help us survive, right? All our skills and all of our labels, right? Like podcaster, photographer, all of those things, they're part of us. But like, who are we at the base of, base of all that? And that thing within us, I think, is nature and is wildness and is freedom. But it's just encapsulated in these uh, external layers, too, that can also be beautiful. But these valleys give us the opportunity to go back there. And that's why I think they're so powerful. And that's why I think these traditions and rituals have developed in these three happy valleys for ways to remind us of that. Like in the sweat lodge, it was a method to be in the dark to sweat it out, to sweat off all those layers and anything extra and to connect with Mother Earth. Right? Or the rituals in Tibetan Buddhism, or the, the story of the Bayul, going to these remote places and putting ourselves in these uncomfortable situations, it gives us an opportunity to strip off those layers and become connected again. And in Morocco, it was just this uh, connection to the indigenous culture there that's still very connected to the land. They rely on farming and the almond trees and the apple trees and the potatoes. And they work as a community uh, and also have anthropomorphic names for the land like mouth and um, head and shoulders. So yeah, it gets us back to our basic nature. And the Happy Valley isn't about finding comfort. I like to say that happy valleys are like an unsanitized happiness. So sometimes we think of happy as being about finding comfort, about having the things that make us feel safe. And those are all good. You know, we all we need that. But there's also a happiness that comes from being okay with being uncomfortable and seeing all the dark and all the light and being okay with that too. So by placing ourselves outside of our comfort zone and in these happy valleys, yeah, it's it's a way to access that. It's funny. You're the second person to say that to me in the last week. Oh wow. <laughs> that that part about being uncomfortable. I went to see Adam Schultz speak in Kingston. Adam's written a number of books. He's a solo canoeist and he he's gone across the Arctic and he does all kinds of crazy things. Last year he went down the entire St. Lawrence, went by us here in Brockville, and then up through Labrador to the Ungava Bay. And he does it by himself. And he said the same thing. He was kind of, he was kind of joking about it saying, you know, everybody's talking about, you know, getting out in nature and even 20 minutes is better than nothing. And he says, but that's all wrong. It should be like, you need to go out and suffer a bit. You need to, that's where, that's where the true finding is. And it's, mm. it's true in a lot of ways. You know, we do, we do, we do so much of this instinctively. You know, we go away for a weekend and we say we're roughing it because we're sleeping on the ground in a tent. Well, you have no idea what roughing is until you read Jane's book when she's living in a cave somewhere in the Himalayas <laughs> and, she, and she's worried about the rats coming in. Um, right. <laughs> you know, 
<laughs> What's the effect been on the people around you? Obviously, the closest ones to you are your family. You have two children and your husband. Mm. Um, what's the effect been on them? And it, you you talk about it quite a bit of the trip to Morocco, a little bit into Happy Valley locally in Alberta, and you guys have moved closer there now. Mm-hmm. But what's what's the effect been on them? Because they've been young children growing up through this. Mm-hmm. They have. Yeah, so when we went to the Morocco, which was like the the youngest sort of part of things where they were part of the story, we just, we took them out of school for, I think we took them out for about three weeks. They were in elementary and I had no qualms about this. I mean, I'm very big on education, of course, but uh it was a, I just knew it would be a huge learning experience. We did a month in Morocco where we um, where we explored, and I was very I just found it so important that they could experience some of the things that I'd experienced in Nepal already because I'd been to Nepal at that point. I wanted them to see what like living in a village was like and having that kind of a close community. Um, and how it's a bit different than our communities here. Not that we don't have great ones. We can if we build them. Um, so I wanted them to see that. I wanted them to see the connection to to the land where you uh, have to take care of the land so you can grow your food, where you have to care for animals so that you can get milk and cheese. And uh, and I just wanted them to do something hard and crazy with me. <laughs> and I wasn't quite ready to bring them to Nepal because they were still, I think, just seven and seven and 12 or something like that. And so um, Zoom was too remote and a little bit too dangerous for them. So Morocco was a really good place. So, you know, they wrote about it in their um, social studies papers. They talk about it, even though they were kids, it made a big impact on them. So I think there's a huge value in taking your children on on adventure travel like that. Being vulnerable together as a family and then working as a team uh, is also really, it just builds, strength in your family i think yeah and then in in alberta we were able to go to a sweat lodge together so i didn't want to exclude them from my experiences even though a lot of them i did have to do alone so my husband and our two children were a little bit older then i think high school and junior high i believe something like that so they were able to meet elders ask questions do a sweat lodge and and connect in ways that i had pined for when i was their age but didn't know why so I was I was really grateful for that experience. And my husband, which this is quite outside of his comfort zone, and he was right in there and he he got to meet everyone and connect too. So I was very proud of him and, and he got a lot out of the experience as well. And the kids have grown up with me um, traveling. So sometimes I would go away for three, four weeks, not often, but I would. And so they also saw me as a woman I'm not saying like excluding any other genders or anything like that, but they got to see me as a mom, um, loving them and being in that sort of traditional mom role at many times, but also going out and being an adventurer. So I have to say like now my son, he's 19 turning 20 and he's going to become a ski guide. So he's going off to Thompson Rivers University to take their adventure guide program. He and I have started this trekking business where we bring people to Nepal and he's like right out there doing extreme ski lines and loving nature. And so I, I don't know, I hope I had some, some part of that because I'm really proud of him. (laughs) Both of them. (laughs) But see, so you bring up the mom part, and I meant to I'm, I meant to ask about this earlier because the the women's the, or sorry the role of women in all of these cultures is very prominent and very important. I think it's interesting because we we often assume it's not. 
Mm. You know, from our, you know, back here in Western civilization, we have this thing that we think that the women's role in these other societies maybe isn't as equal or isn't as important. But Mm -hmm. in all, all three of these, right? Mm -hmm. The women's role and even within the the belief system, the women's role is much more pronounced than it is in, you know, our Christian belief system. Yeah. Yeah. Like uh, we have a patriarchal system that it's been built on a patriarchal system, but in Blackfoot culture, women were seen as very powerful and they were the ones who would gather uh, from what I've learned. And I don't want to speak on behalf of them, but they would gather the plants. They would they would do certain things because they were considered more, they were considered very close to earth it's and very pa- powerful. Yeah. Um, there's actually, do you mind if I have a quick look in here? I'll, I could find no. a little passage. Paulette Fox, who wrote her master's thesis uh, with the University of Lethbridge, she wrote from her thesis, she says of the Blackfoot people, our hair is the grass on the prairie. Our bones are the mountains. Our veins and arteries are rivers, streams, creeks. Our breath is the wind. Our heart is in the middle of the earth. So for us, Mother Earth is more than just a provider. For us, she's our teacher, our protector. We learn from her. We heal from her. If we feel like giving up, we sit on her. So Mother Earth, right? Mother Earth, it's a female. And she also says in Blackfoot culture, women are stronger spiritually. They pick the sweet grass, the sage, the berries, the herbs, the roots, because they are closer to Mother Earth. And therefore, when they pick these things, it is stronger energy. Yeah, I thought that was beautiful. And when I went to the Sundance ceremony on the tree day, it was the little girls who got to do the first, they had they have to cut the tree, right? The poplar, the tree. They did the first blows to the tree with the little girls. Yeah. And so there was this feeling, um, there's a lot of power uh, for, the, for the female. Like I said, I think we just automatically kind of, we expect or accept that the fact that maybe the women's roles aren't as prominent mm-hmm. in, the, in other cultures as they are. What are you going to tell somebody? What are you going to tell me when I meet you someday near Canmore, Alberta? And I say, okay, Jane, I've read your book. It's wonderful. How do I start my path to find my own happy valley? Well, if I'm qualified to give advice and I'm not sure about that, (laughs) I could help in any way. I mean, I found in the end my happy valley in Canmore. I've always been drawn to the Bow Valley and it but I grew up in Edmonton. So I just had to get brave and get really clear that I wanted to live a life in the mountains and then make sure my family was on board. <laughs> and now they are. <laughs> but if I was going to give advice to others, I would say, I mean, first you need to travel. Uh, like if you're looking for a physical happy valley, you need to travel and find a place that really speaks to you where you feel yourself where you feel relaxed and inspired and different land will talk to different people, right? Some people prefer the vast open prairies, right? I, I prefer the mountains and the deep valleys and the ridges. So where do you feel that inspiration? Like what land speaks to you? I found, I found my spot, but that's okay. Oh, nice. <laughs> so you don't need my advice. <laughs> I don't need your advice, but somebody yeah. listening, right? I mean, it's, it's, I, I found it interesting because it's, I have found my spot mm-hmm. and it's, it's not far from here. Kind of like you and Canmore. Mm-hmm. It's, it's relatively close. It's, it's lake, it's trees, it's rock, it's Canadian shield. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And every time I arrive there, the weight of the world lifts every single time. This is nice. This one feels like home. And I, th and I think that that's, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I think you moving to Canmore and you talk a little bit about it at the end of your book. Yeah. That's you coming home. Yeah, that was me coming home. And I do feel at home. I also feel like half my home is in Sum Nepal. I, uh, half my sure. heart is there. And then yeah. half my heart is here. And of course, my heart's with all my friends and family, wherever they are. But yeah, I think that a happy valley can be a physical place where you feel like what you said, where it lifts, and you're just like released of all sort of the upper layer stuff and you're in the deeper layer stuff but it's also a place you could travel to you don't have to live there either it can be a place that challenges you and makes you feel i think feeling a bit vulnerable is important where you don't have all the answers so that mm -hmm. you're like a child again sort of exploring and adventuring that's important yeah a place that you don't necessarily feel comfortable those can all be sort of parts of happy valley and then ultimately it doesn't have to be a valley right it can be something else but a place that really speaks to you makes you vulnerable and a place where you get to learn something and feel something on a deeper level yeah is there another happy valley out there for you i'm not sure i'm not sure if there's another happy valley i mean i have some inspirations for my next book but they're not necessarily around a valley <laughs> and that's all she's saying folks <laughs> so far <laughs> it's coming on fast though i didn't think i'd be ready to start thinking about a next book but when my copy of happy valley came my husband and i sat down in front of our fireplace in canmore we talked about it and we had a drink and celebrated it and then i looked in the fire and then we, we kind of finished talking and in i had not been ready to think about another new project because when you're in a project as an artist, you know, it's it's full on. You're open to inspiration. You're waking up in the middle of the night. You're writing things down. You have to be really open. Um, and I haven't been writing this book for a while now. It's been in editing and publication. So I looked in the fire and I was like, whoa, I just got the title for my next book. Where did that come from? I've been kind of thinking about it, but it just came. And then my husband out of the blue is like, so I know this question is like what authors hate, but what's next? I'm like, oh my God, I actually know. I think I know. So yeah, something's brewing. <laughs> Thanks, Jane. Thanks so much, Bill. Jane Marshall, author of In Search of Happy Valley. Available from Rocky Mountain Books. You can find Jane online at cjanewright.ca and on Instagram at Jane in the Mountains. Thanks to Alina Simpson of Media Made Manageable and Sarah Simpson for their help with this episode. The Northern Latitudes theme music and sound logo is created by John Sanfilippo of Soundwise in Kingston, Ontario. Closing music is by Cody Martin and is called Discovering the Ancients. I'm Bill Alt. Find your way to Northern Latitudes. <laughs>